Good evening, everybody. It's Steph. Hope you're doing well. It's, uh, yeah, it's been a long day. I started coding. Oh, the crack of coding. It's, uh, I've got a lot of data to analyze about the manufacturing industry, so I've hurled it into a database, and I'm doing lots of coding to extract the data. Oh, it's just too delish for words. So, uh, I hope you're doing well. I've decided to, um, uh, I know this is going to be a shock, but I have decided to listen to the listenership. I have decided to listen to the... Take a moment. I know it's a shock. But I'm going to listen to the listenership who seemed to like the art series. So this is going to be art part three. So I hope that you enjoy it. So we uh, we sort of left off the discussion last time, talking about how art was sort of an emotional argument for a particular kind of worldview, for a particular kind of essence. Art is an argument for essence. What is the essence of life, right? So uh, it has a lot to do with the difference between the accidental and the natural. The natural and the accidental, right? So a biologist will tell you that it's natural for human beings to give birth to babies with one heads, and it's unnatural for uh, human beings to give birth to uh, to babies with two heads. And an artist will similarly juggle the natural and the unnatural in, in sort of very important ways that are well worth examining because this argument is made perpetually within art, right? So we talked about last time how in art nothing is chosen. And that's a very important thing to understand because there's this selective focus in the world of art, there is inevitably a, uh, a focus on, um, on that which is not accidental and that which, which is essential. And, and that which is essential is the sort of theme of the, uh, of the story or the movie or the whatever it is that you're looking at, even the painting. So if you see a movie or read a book wherein everybody uh, continually fails, right? They, they attempt to achieve things and they continually and perpetually fail. Well... It certainly would not be um, unnatural. <laughs> it would not be odd to understand uh, if you're a movie maker. Let's just make it a movie where everyone sort of tries and, and tries to achieve things and fails. It would not be a weird thing to, to be a movie maker and to say, well, occasionally people succeed. Because, of course, you've succeeded in, yes, making a film, right? So there's a lot of uh, odds against uh, making a film. Uh, and having it succeed, well, at least getting it out to a market, as I sort of know from personal experience. So if you actually get it to make the film, then you have achieved something pretty significant, I would say. And so uh, you have obviously done a lot of things that have failed, uh, as we all have, but you have managed to get this movie made. And then you make a movie, and in the movie, you continually focus on uh, all of the people who are failing. And so, what is it that uh, occurs in the mind of the listener when you are talking like that? Well, the first and major thing that occurs is that everybody knows that people do succeed in life, right? Assuming you're not in a communist dictatorship or something like that, or working in the public sector, let's just say that there are people who succeed in life. Now, given that we know that there are people who succeed in life, If you have a movie wherein everybody is failing, it's very clear, I think, that you're saying that, yes, there is occasional success in life, but it's really accidental. The norm uh, is failure. The thing that we need to focus on is failure. (coughs) 
So when you think of uh, Arthur Miller's The Death of a Salesman, here you have a guy who's a really bad salesman, a sort of pathetic Jack Lemmon kind of salesman. I actually saw the, saw the uh, touring play with Judd Hirsch. He was very good. And um, this guy who is um, uh, psychotic, he has breaks with reality, he's domineering, he's bullying, he's uh, mad in a lot of ways, and his long-suffering and noble wife and all this kind of stuff. Now, Arthur Miller knew that there was such a thing as successful salesmen, because he himself was one. Every artist is a salesman to some degree, which is why you need agents, right? But uh, Arthur Miller saw that there was success and he'd achieved great success, but what he wished to do was to focus, focus people's attention on the, um, uh, on the, what he, the Lowman, right? Willie Lowman is the name of the character, the low man, right? The man who's, uh, who's not doing well. So he knew that there were successful people, uh, but he wanted to focus people's attention and say that the really important thing in life is that which is a failure, uh, th those who are failures. And not just people who strive and fail, but Willie Lohman as a particular kind of, uh, and fairly scabrous kind of social metaphysician who attempts to uh, make up realities, he goes along, and, and, you know, people always sort of get that this is blamed on capitalism, but actually Arthur Miller himself pointed out when talking about the play that the nicest guy in the whole play is the capitalist. But um, people always, you know, the salesman is, uh, is a sort of degrading... And there is a sort of an attack on capitalism here because there is this, uh, you know, this is the bad salesman kind of myth, right? Though not more than a myth. I mean, it's certainly reality in many ways, but... Uh, a salesman who doesn't work to sort of provide value and doesn't work to sort of give you uh, the lowdown on products and services that will end up saving you money or making you happy, but the guy who's just lies to take your money and so on. And yet, he portrays this salesman who basically has been cheating on his wife, uh, cheating his customers and so on, he portrays him as a tragic hero and gives him great moving speeches about uh, you know, how he just wants to amount to something and so on. So there's a very sort of um, a strong argument that's made here, right? Which is that uh, this guy uh, is helpless. He's helpless in the face of his delusions. He's helpless in the face of his failure. He's not responsible for his, uh, his failures. And, and that's how we have sympathy, right? Once you remove the, um, uh, the causality... Uh, in the self-causality of disaster, it becomes tragedy, right? So when tragedy... Tragedy is what happens to people despite their best intentions, and uh, uh, justice is what happens to people as a result of their own actions and, and as a result of their bad intentions. So if uh, Arthur Miller or someone were to write a play about my mother, then there would be this, you know, sad, broken, lonely uh, woman uh, festering in a rotting apartment... Uh, and uh, nobody came to see her, and she had turned into a sort of obsessive human being uh, and uh, had not taken care of herself, and this would be tragic. I mean, people would be heartbroken, it would feel very sad, and so on. And that would sort of be one uh, way of telling the story, right? And she would uh, have flashbacks to the war, and she'd be this lonely person uh, whose spirit had been broken young by the brutal Nazi regime and, uh, and who was living out the end of her days and her kids didn't want to see her and her husband didn't, uh, she'd been divorced for many years. And, you know, there'd be a sort of sad, pitiful loneliness to it. And uh, she would have long, wistful uh, stares out the window and she would shuffle around and, and uh, she would try and call uh, in... Um, she would try and call her sons in the way that... Um, uh, is it Amanda? Amanda in a glass menagerie tries to call the woman... 
and tries to sell her a magazine subscription and then tries to um, uh, sort of get through to her son and so on in the sort of wistful feminine, uh, wouldn't it be nice if everyone was nicer kind of way? And that would be a particular argument around morality and, and, uh, and its effects, which is that you get swept up in world events uh, you are uh, torn apart by forces beyond your control when you're young, uh, war and Nazism and so on. And then you, uh, you try to raise your kids the best you can. They can't understand how difficult your life was and they can't understand how you became what you became. And the argument would then be that there's a sad inevitability to family breakups. There's a blank space between human beings that can't be crossed uh, based on separate experience, that the children are shallow and uh, materialistic and have no interest in this old, broken wreckage of a war child, and so on. I mean, there would be all this kind of stuff, and there would all be a very uh, self-indulgent and, and uh, I would say, uh, uh, sentimental in, a, in the worst kind of way approach to telling that story. And that would be to say that, um, you know, that there is connection in the world, maybe, but there's an enormous amount of non-connection and enormous amount of loneliness that isn't anyone's fault, or maybe it would be sort of vaguely put on the children, but uh, there's no, no one is to blame, right? There's an enormous amount of art that is like that. And uh, another way to tell the story of my mother would be, and I'm not saying either one of these is perfectly accurate, I mean, a blend is important, but another, the complete opposite tale to tell would be to pick up with a sort of a uh, stunningly attractive and slender and svelte uh, woman in her mid-twenties who was jetting around the world as a personal courier and uh, met a guy and uh, ended up, uh, you know, going for uh, the gold because he was educated. She thought he'd make a lot of money and she settled down with him and then she became, uh, she had two kids which she didn't like uh, and she screamed at them and she shook them and uh, she worried about her figure all the time, and she got angry at her husband for not doting on her hand and foot, and she became petty, and then she divorced her husband, and then she sort of uh, started dating around and uh, just trying to milk her, her looks for everything that's, that, that she could, and she had these wonderful, sensitive children, and she brutalized them, and, uh, you know, she was screaming at them, she threw things at them, uh, she, uh, she terrified them, uh, uh, and, uh, and then, you know, later, uh, her children drift away, and uh, she's left uh, with the wreckage of the mess that she herself has created, right? I mean, that would sort of be another way of telling the story. Uh, that would be uh, more, of course, it would be enormously sympathetic to, uh, to the children, right? I mean, so if you have a broken old woman and you don't see her abusing her children, then she looks like a sympathetic person. If you see a broken old woman and you get the flashbacks uh, about her beating her head's kids against a uh, kids heads against a wall or throwing things at them or shaking them or punching them or whatever then uh, you're like and good riddance to you right I mean that would sort of be the emotion that would go through a lot of people uh, people's hearts unless of course they themselves had abused their children in which case they'd be highly offended at the movie so this is just sort of two ways of telling a story about a woman right where you pick up uh, it's important, right? If you, if you look at the sort of two bookends of my mother's life, right, an admittedly terrifying and horrible childhood uh, in uh, Nazi Germany, and then a, uh, a, a very pathetic end uh, to a life, uh, shuffling around in a bathrobe in a, uh, an apartment filled with uh, uh, mold and, and uh, horrible things and papers and all this kind of stuff, 
if you see those, right, then you see, okay, well, you know, frightened child in a world of war, and then a lonely woman uh, whose son doesn't want to see her, uh, you know, shuffling around in, in a, an apartment and living hand to mouth and, and so on, then it's like, oh my God, what a tragic life, right? I mean, that would be, uh, it's where you pick, it's what you pick out of people's lives that is the argument for what it is. And this, of course, people do this all the time. I mean, if you really want to see art, uh, you see how people talk to you when you first meet them. And that's art. I mean, that's like, that's a monologue of selective uh, uh, attention, uh, if ever there was one. I mean, if you really want to see art, then see how people talk about themselves on a first date. I mean, that's, I mean, that's the kind of art that you just couldn't reproduce uh, in, uh, in any more of a compelling kind of way. What is it they tell you about? What is it they don't tell you about? And it can be either way, right? I mean, it doesn't have to be that they're always telling you about the best things. They could be telling you about the worst things. I remember going on a blind date once. A woman spent uh, 45 minutes uh, telling me about uh, how her ex-boyfriend uh, ran up all her credit card debts and then ran off, and she's still paying them off. And it was like, thanks, bye. Right? I mean, and then I had to sort of say, well, look, uh, since you're not quite ready to date, or at least not me, so uh, good luck with all that. But, I mean, there's somebody who's putting across a pretty clear message, right? So when we tell people about ourselves, there's a certain kind of artistic creation in all of that, right? So, of course, the more you know about someone, the less art is possible, right? Which is, uh, uh, this is what I mean when I say art is a form of propaganda. This occurs when we meet people. It occurs in our grooming. It occurs in, uh, you know, do we have a, a secret taste for... Uh, Green Day, but we only tell them that we listen to Bach, right? I mean, all of this is part of a self-portrait, right? It's part of an artistic approach. Uh, so whenever we tell people about ourselves or introduce ourselves, um, we paint a portrait of ourselves, right? Because we give them a selective amount of information. And the grooming, of course, is pretty comprehensive, but when we tell them about our lives, uh, that's all we give them, right? So if you were to sort of show my mom's life bracketed by uh, a hellish war and then a lonely old age, it would be tragic, right? So, oh my God, that's terrible. If you sort of skipped over the violent abuse that she enacted upon her helpless children, then uh, it's tragic, right? And you're saying one thing about, uh, about uh, um, uh, a human being and, and her relationships to those around her, or lack thereof. If, on the other hand, you don't show the uh, brutalized childhood that she went through, and a much more frightening one than I did, if you don't show that, and you don't show the sort of sad and pathetic old age, but you show this uh, brittle, vain woman who would rather uh, uh, go uh, uh, gallivanting around town and leave her children, uh, you know, with ten bucks for two weeks to sort of survive uh, because she wanted to fly down to Houston to meet a guy she wanted to date, uh, you know, you would see this incredible shallowness. Uh, she'd be very good-looking, as my mom was, so there'd be all of that. And, and you'd, just, you'd have this, this sort of contempt and hatred for this Jessica, Tan uh, Jessica Lang kind of mom, right? So what you choose to present is the moral argument that you're making for uh, existence, really, for existence. If all of the characters in your stories are violent, well, clearly you know that there are non-violent people in the world, right? And there's quite a few of them, right? But if every few is a Tarantino guy and everyone in your stories is violent, then uh, it's... Uh yeah, it's clear what you're saying. You're saying, yeah, there are nonviolent people, but they don't matter. You know, what's really matters, what's really important is this, uh, is this, right? Is people pointing guns and cutting each other's limbs off and so on, blood spurting and beheadings and so on. Yeah, there's nonviolent people, but they don't matter, right? They're, they're inconsequential. They're the detritus. They're the accidental. The essential is what it is that I'm portraying 
to you, what it is that I'm portraying. So, certainly in my novels, I've tried to focus on what I consider essential in life, and those who uh, have read them or listened to them can let me know. And I will get back to, to God of Atheists at some point. I'm sorry that I haven't finished it yet, but uh, I, have, uh, I have chosen to do other things. So, given that there is this very selective approach to talking about reality in art, then I think it's important to really get a hang of not just what art says about the artist, but also what art says about the consumer. Also what art says about the consumer. I knew a gentleman, he's now a professor, not the one that I've talked about in economics, but I knew a gentleman when I was younger uh, who uh, was uh, very disturbed. And he uh, would self-mutilate at parties, get heavily drunk, and he was into music that was... um, you know, it sort of ranged from the psychedelic furs on the sort of alternative up here in Canada, the CFNY kind of stuff, to bands like King Kurt, I think was the name of the band, where he went to a show and they were throwing around live animal, throwing around animal entrails and bathing people in blood and just some really, uh, you know, in my mind, some sick stuff, right? And he also uh, was into a band that would record these chillingly, like literally give you goosebumps kind of demonic songs where there'd be a children chanting and then a growling and just as absolutely sociopathic uh, stuff. I mean, I, I remember listening to it with a friend once and we both just had to turn it off because we got really freaked out. It's pretty scary stuff. And of course, he's never had a close relationship. He's never had uh, a girlfriend. He's never dated, uh, to my knowledge, except for like one really tortured relationship that never went anywhere. So, you know, these kinds of things give me some sort of indication about the role of art in people's lives. Certainly in the dark times in my life, it's been particular bands that have attracted me, right? As a teenager, I listened to Side 3 of the Wall every night before going to bed because uh, it was uh, a fairly good representation of the kind of stuff that I was going through, right? This, especially the movie, right? This guy, this boy who's got an overprotective mother and the father is gone and, and so on. So... It's certainly been in my case that when I am a happier person, I'm drawn towards happier sorts of music. Uh, Try the Millionaire Waltz by Queen, just a delightful piece of uh, riffraff. But um, when I'm happier, uh, I tend to be drawn towards happier music. And when I'm uh, sad then or, or, or upset, then I tend to be drawn towards other kinds of music. I had a guy I knew who was a programmer, and uh, he was uh, severely dysfunctional in his personal relationships, right? And also somebody who did not tell the truth to himself and to others. And, and uh, you know, so he ran into his ex-girlfriend, uh, who he lived with for a couple of years and had a nasty breakup with, and he was like, no, I'm fine, right? But his hands were shaking. He simply could not admit that this would be a surprising and shocking thing for anyone, a surprising thing. And the kind of he was uh, music that he was into was, you know, the sort of treble charger and uh, uh, bad religion and, uh, you know, all of this kind of angry alternative uh, stuff that uh, was pretty significant. And I thought it was, in- thought it was interesting. Uh, he once played me a song uh, that he had his, on his MP3 that was uh, by Garth Brooks. And this was, of course, the guy knew it was nothing to do with country. So I was just like, whoa, dude. And I sort of felt that I had a soul tussle for this uh, guy's soul with another gentleman who worked at the company uh, that I ran. And uh, the other gentleman was 
a very dangerous, uh, at least to my mind, a very pleasant, but also a very dangerous uh, kind of uh, uh, sort of seducer to the dark side in a way, and that he was heavy into drinking and uh, uh, kind of not into very healthy relationships and so on. And so I would chat with this guy and sort of try and point him in, in a direction that I thought was more was better. But this guy had a history of drinking in the past and then fell into this crowd. There's like four guys who lived in a house all together. They called themselves the frat boys. And they just had these like long weekend benders. And he took me once or I went to a birthday party of his where he ended up basically getting uh, bullied, uh, sort of peer pressured heavily into drinking to the point where he got really sick. And I was just a complete mess, right? So uh, when he began falling into this guy's orbit, he then began listening to and enjoying the only country song that I ever heard him mention. And of course, the Garth Brooks song, which I'm sure you'll have guessed if you know country music, was, uh, well, I got friends in low places where the whiskey drowns and the beer chases my blues away. And I'm here. To... Oh, I went too low. Oh, dear subsonic. <laughs> but... I've got friends in low places, right? And and this, uh, how does it start? Uh, blame it all on my roots. I showed up in boots and ruined your black tie affair, right? This is about uh, sort of sliding down the social ladder into friends who are simply there to sort of drag you down and, and have all these bad things happen and so on. And the fact that this song kind of went into his uh, mind was, I think, quite significant. And the fact that he began to enjoy it, right? Art will tell you an enormous amount about yourself if you listen to it, what you're, what you're interested in. <coughs> when I was younger and thought I knew, uh, you know, a lot more than I think I know now uh, and uh, was very much into philosophy and felt that I had it, you know, pretty much worked out except for the fact that I wasn't applying it in my own life, but I thought I had worked out theoretically. I was interested in, I, I would get sort of, this song would run through my head, like, for months at a time. Longer, I think. Uh, it's a Phil Collins song, uh, just just when I thought it was going all right, I found it. Just when I thought it was going all right, I found it I'm wrong when I thought I was right. It's always the same, it's just a shame, that's all. And that really was a, uh, it would just get stuck in my mind, go round and round over and over again, right? And, of course, that's a piece of art that's sticking in my head from my unconscious, keeps floating it up like a trial balloon, saying, dude, you haven't got it all figured out. You think it's all right, but it's wrong. The only way that I was able to change that was I reprogrammed my unconscious, or tried to, by reversing it. So just when I thought I, uh, it was going all wrong, I found out I'm right when I thought I was wrong. <laughs> just reversed it, and that gave me some relief from the song going around in my head. So that kind of stuff, uh, if you, you know, look at what it is that you're drawn to, you can learn an enormous amount. I mean, dreams are a kind of... Uh, sorry, art is a kind of waking dream. That you can analyze your own attraction to particular forms of art, to particular kinds of art, and find out quite a lot about, uh, about yourself. And, you know, somebody who is into house, or somebody who's into rap, or somebody who's into thrash metal, or ska, or these kinds of things, uh, they... They have particular kind of characteristics that draw them to this kind of music, this kind of beat, this kind of emotional content, or non-emotional content, and so on. So, when you look at uh, art, I, I think it's enormously helpful and, and instructive to understand that you can really judge someone by the kind of art that they're uh, interested in, assuming that they're not giving you the false, sort of false positive of being into art because they kind of get it and it's the effect that they 
want to uh, uh, pursue, right? So there's that old Saturday Night Live sketch sketch with uh, the guys who uh, are going to the club and that baby don't hurt me song. <coughs> well, what's partly funny about that, of course, if that's exactly the kind of song that people like that would be uh, would be into, right? Shallow and uh, uh, and um, uh, empty and emotionally uh, barren, and yet uh, you know with a lot of pain underneath, right? What is love, baby? Don't hurt me, right? Don't hurt me no more, right? So there's this empty, shallow giddiness, which is cloaking a lot of uh, a lot of pain, and you can have a lot of fun with this kind of stuff analyzing things in art, right? Somebody walks up to you and says, my favorite movie is A Room with a View, right? That tells you quite a lot, and that's one of my favorite movies, by the way, if you ever get a chance to watch it. Oh, it's magnificent. But um, that tells you one thing about, or something about that type of person. If somebody comes up and says, um, my favorite movie is Saw 3, right? Or my favorite movie is American Psycho, or, you know, my favorite movie is uh, Scarface, well, that tells you quite a lot about that individual. Somebody who comes up to you and says, um, my favorite novel is Glamorama, or my favorite novel is The Fountainhead, tells you quite a lot about that person. It doesn't tell you everything, of course, because there's lots of reasons. People are attracted to art because it mirrors something in themselves, or they yearn for something, uh, and they can't uh, or haven't achieved it, right? So some people are in love The Fountainhead because it mirrors something in themselves, since I grew up with my brother, sort of like Peter Keating, uh, and have struggled in, in similar ways to Howard Rock, uh, um, there's things that I love about that novel, but there are other people who love The Fountainhead because they yearn for this kind of virtue, uh, but they do not find it mirrored within their own life, right? So they sort of yearn for it, but they can't, uh, they can't achieve it, right? So it's more of a sort of despairing thing to love. It's like the, the guys, uh, you know, who... who um, you know, t tubby, short guys who don't take care of themselves uh, want to go out with, you know, supermodels, right? Uh, there's a kind of yearning that uh, is kind of like uh, self-hatred as well at the same time, right? Even though they, you know, fetishize the physical attractiveness of these women, there's a kind of yearning that is uh, actually quite uh, self-destructive. And, and that can occur with art as well, where people, uh, you know, just read nothing but uh, Ayn Rand or, or other, you know, whatever uh, it is. And they uh, they yearn for it, but they don't actually try to achieve it in their own right in their own lives, right? So uh, there was a guy I knew who was really into Ayn Rand, and would go to prostitutes, and uh, you know it uh, was not uh, not healthy. And you can see this, right? I mean, you can see this sort of very clearly. At least I could. But um, this was not uh, not healthy stuff. So why was he into it? Well, he was into it for the same reason that guys who don't take care of themselves uh, sort of trail after or. Uh, end up getting attached to, you know, really attractive women or stalk them or whatever because, uh, you know, it's kind of a way of just driving away the good by becoming obsessed by it, right? So it's not always easy, right? It's not like everyone who, who loves Ayn Rand is, is a virtuous and rational person or anything like that, as we know from our conversations with objectivists and with libertarians, but there are still indications, right, uh, that can be very important to, uh, to trace, right, when it comes to art. Uh, I think that uh, uh, when, Chris, when Christine and I, our second date, I showed her Room with a View because it had just come out in DVD and I hadn't seen it in quite a while. And she loved the film. And the fact that she loved the film that I loved was uh, quite uh, quite important, was very important to me. And that kind of visibility that we yearn for, where we really want people to love the things that we love, is is very important. I've also sort of found that people who 
I think, I mean, this is sort of the last thing I'll say before I stop uh, here and let me know if this is of interest to you and we'll maybe pick it up in R4, but what I've found is that, I mean, generally there are two types of people in the world, right? There are people who are defensive and aggressive and, and, and then there are people who are curious and open, right? And what I've found is that if people criticize my art, like my choice in art or say it means bad things about me or whatever, or maybe non-complimentary things about me, I'm so like, oh, well, tell me what you think. Maybe that's the case. Maybe there's something I can learn from this. But I found that when I, um, when I put forward the kinds of art that I think are ignoble uh, or base or, you know, represent a sort of a low self-esteem or something like that, then uh, I find that people get very prickly and defensive. And that just sort of me confirms the diagnosis, so... Uh, it's just kind of funny that people get, they think that uh, by getting mad at somebody who's questioning their taste, uh, they're somehow refuting it. But, you know, all it does is confirm the diagnosis, because if I'm wrong, right, a, a kind and gentle and secure person will tell me that I'm wrong by um, uh, stepping me through a logical pattern and not being offended and so on. Uh, but uh, that's not what happens. People often will just get mad. So I just sort of suggest, be careful, right, when you're talking about this sort of stuff with people. Uh, oh, this art means X. Uh, just be careful, because people do get very volatile about their artistic choices. They don't like what it reveals about them, but they can't give it give it, give it up right without uh, learning more about themselves and becoming better people. So I hope this has been helpful. Thank you so much for listening. I'll talk to you soon. I look forward to your donations. It's been a little bit dry, except for the one small one today. So uh, if you would like to couple, uh, throw a couple of bucks my way, it would be enormously appreciated. Thank you so much.